This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. This week is Pastor Steve Camp here on Conversations, and I'm so glad that we could have Steve sit down and we can just kind of go over a bunch of the issues that we've been discussing on Twitter and on social media and all that kind of stuff. So, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and uh, just have this conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. I, I always love interacting with you. I always love our conversations and our talks off the air. And so it's it's fun to actually yeah. talk face to face. Because in all reality, we've talked on the phone. We've talked on Twitter, on email, on everything except for maybe face to face. And this is as close as we've gotten. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Now. You're going to have to come to Florida or I'm going to have to come to L.A. We're going to have to do something in between. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, to, for sure. To bridge the gap a little bit. But yeah. no, I enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the Lord and Boy, you've had quite a year. It's been a, a, a growing year for you, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's an explosive year. It's, in some it's, ways. it's been a roller coaster, shall we say? Because I mean, it yeah. just it just it just kind of really came out of nowhere and yeah. didn't expect anything to really come of anything. Except I was just conversing with people, and then all of a sudden, everything blew <laughs> up in my face, and it's just <laughs> insane. Yeah. Thus, <laughs> thus, the conversations is a natural thing for you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, and like that's that's the thing too about having these kinds of conversations. I feel like within the church, and I mentioned this in the, in the last episode with Janet Mefford, is yeah. that when in within the church there, nobody's really having these con- these kinds of conversations with people that they may agree with or may disagree with everybody kind of sticks in their own little camps and yep. then just yells at each other from across the way and then just yeah. condemns each other and it's like why not just kind of talk it out we'll probably still disagree if we disagree on some we're probably, but at least we understand where each other's coming from and then we can actually debate the issues or discuss yeah, or absolutely. you know absolutely Absolutely. Reasonable people would do that. So I'm glad we're doing this. Yes, exactly. Totally. <laughs> and so, so we'll just kind of get into the issues here in just a second. But I know that, um, with you, I kind of wanted to hear from you about a little bit in your background in the sense of, cause you were really big in the mu- in the Christian music industry for the longest time. Yeah. How, how did that transition go from going in, in from the music, somewhat entertainment industry into being a pastor and going into ministry? Like what led to going into that? Yeah, I know that people kind of do a, a hard right turn and think what happened, but <laughs> it's a natural progression. Yeah, uh, it's interesting in, in the Greek, kainos, the word new mm-hmm. is used more times in relation to music than any other thing in Scripture. Uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, or in the New Testament. Uh, sing a new song is a phrase most people will be familiar with. And so when you see this, and you see it in the Psalms primarily, and here is Scripture containing great theological conduct uh, and content about our worship and about what encompasses our lives before the Lord Jesus Christ— uh, we see this coming through the truth of God's word. One of my favorite verses 
verses that bring these two worlds together is Psalm 119, 54. Mm. Thy statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Uh, his theology are doxology. His word are music. His statutes are songs. And so all these years of writing songs uh, has come out of my study of God's word. Uh, when I was 17 years old and started writing songs, really, for the first time, my mom, uh, my dad had recently gone home to be with the Lord, and my mom gave me my first set of commentaries ever. I highly recommend them. It's called The Treasury of David okay. by Charles Spurgeon. Oh, and yeah, she says, if there. you're going to, yeah, you can't. It's just phenomenal. It is his magnum opus. It's his great work. It took him over 20 years to write it. And the thing about it is he has dozens of great pastors and other theologians and so forth listed in the exposition of every single verse of every single one of the Psalms. It mm. is just an exhaustive, wonderful commentary. And she says, Steve, I want you to be a man after God's own heart. I want you to study the words. You're, you're a sinner in need of grace, as we all are every day. But she goes, if you want to be a good songwriter, study the Psalms, and this is the best commentary I know. So that began my journey. So all during music, when we would do autograph signings of bookstores, say, Jeff, right. uh, the bookstore owner would say, is there anything that you would like? We usually try to give a gift uh, to our guest artists. And I said, can I get some commentaries? Yeah. They said, oh, man, absolutely. We'll give you a little box, fill them up. So over the years, I collected over 10,000 commentaries. Wow. On studying the word. And back in the day before there were iPhones and iPads and everything else, I would travel uh, on airlines or if we were on the tour bus, I would have a suitcase full of different Bible translations and about a dozen commentaries. And we'd go out for a week or so. I'd come back, load up again. I would carry two pilot bags with me uh, on the airlines. And literally in one, I'd have Bible translations in the other I would have some Greek manuscripts. I would have commentaries on different books I'd be studying. So, you know, apart from sound check and the concerts and so forth, I would be studying the Word. And so, you know, early on in this unfolding of this, I got a chance to meet different men of God. Dr. Stephen Olford, who is now with the Lord, who mentored me in my early years. I met R.C. Sproul in the late 70s. He encouraged me and introduced me really to the doctrines of grace and the Reformed faith, the five solas, mm -hmm. the great Puritan writers. Uh, in the late 80s, I met Dr. MacArthur, and he became just an elder brother to me and a, and a mentor for many years. I've known John now for about 30 years. Each one of those dear guys have always uh, loaded me up with great commentaries and recommended excellent books. And so I've been a reader, sometimes reading three or four books a week, and then I would take the truths of those songs, or pardon me, truths of those books, and try to put them into a song. Uh, so when it came time to venture into pastoral ministry, I didn't look at it as kind of a hard right turn off of a path I'd been on, but a continuation of something that seemed very natural, of communicating the truth of God's Word, as opposed to a song now, simply through the weekly preachment of his word and through daily discipleship with people and counseling and visitation in hospitals and going to the jails and ministering to people. Uh, all of that just seemed an extension of the study of God's word. I'm still writing songs. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, we did one this last Sunday morning. It came together about a half hour before service, created a PowerPoint for it, yeah. and it was Psalm 1 put to music. 
using the great uh, Isaac Watts uh, hymnal on the Psalms. Just tremendous stuff. So it seemed like part of the extension. If we're going to sing the word, we should study the word. We should crave the word, obey the word, but also teach and preach the word. And uh, since the early 90s, I've either had Bible studies at the house or I've taught Sunday school at churches or served as associate pastor somewhere. But the last nine years, I've been lead pastor here at the cross in Palm City. And so all of that is just one seamless continuation of God's grace in allowing ministry through the word, whether it's in song or in preaching. And that's how the two of those worlds kind of connect. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this church and serve these wonderful people that love the Lord and really demand a lot as a pastor. They keep me sharp and they ask really great penetrating questions. And uh, I'm so grateful for them. For sure, totally. And, you know, and one of the things that I've appreciated, you know, listening to some of your sermons, you know, like online and that sort of thing is you are focused on the exposition. You are focused on explaining this is what God's word says. And I feel like that's such a hard thing to find nowadays, uh, unless you're finding like the right church and the right pastor and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So that is a great encouragement. It really is. Well, I I thank you for those kind words. You know, one of the things, Jeff, just for those that are listening that may be in pastoral ministry or just young men and women that are saying, man, how do I grow deeper in my love for the Lord and love for his word? Uh, One of the things I do is uh, uh, I read every day in wonderful Bible reading programs. I usually get through the Bible about four times in one year. Mm -hmm. Uh, It comes out to about eight times in the New Testament and four times in the Old Testament. And it's a wonderful practice uh, to do. There's some excellent Bible calendar programs to read through the scriptures in a year. You don't have to do it on an accelerated program as I do it all. Mm -hmm. But just to stay in the Word, and I tell you, even if you're reading a chapter a day or two chapters a day, or if you say, you know what, I'm going to dedicate a month just to read the book of Proverbs, begin somewhere, or I think I would like to read through in the next month or two the Gospel of John, and I'm going to take a chapter or two each day and and do so. Uh, That is a wonderful habit of developing a love for the Word, and I would encourage you to to read in the Old and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So the Bible reading program that I'm most familiar with uh, is is McShane's uh, program. It's on Vision. It's on Olive Tree. Most of the Bible programs uh, have it. Uh, Mantis, I believe, has it. Other Bible software programs, uh, Lagos has it. They have their own as well. Uh, some excellent programs. And all as I do is I quadruple the amount I'm supposed to read that day so that when I go through it, I read the scriptures four times through in a year. Uh, but what it does, you see a cohesiveness after a while. And this is really why I, I really believe Reformed theology is the is the biblical theology that the Lord has always designed for us. And the reason why is you see a seamless content from the Old Testament to the New uh, that that really gives us a, a sense of God's purposes throughout all of redemptive history. I think a lot of people today could be red-letter Christians, right? right. Only, only the words of Jesus and the Gospels. They could mm-hmm. be Pauline Christians in the 14 epistles he wrote, or Some might think, well, I've read the Psalms a little bit, and I've read the first three chapters of Genesis, wanted to see how it got going, but nothing on from there. But if you read through it all continually, it is a blessing. And I tell you, there's a hunger and a thirsting and a sharpening. I mean, the Word of God not only comforts us, it convicts us, it challenges us. 
so I would encourage your, your viewers here to consider a daily diet of God's Word. If it's a chapter a day, if it's half a chapter a day, make it a discipline in your life. And especially for pastors, don't worry about the latest gimmicks or trends or what's going on so much on the, the sea changes in culture. Make your emphasis to know Christ, to honor the Lord, to study his truths, set your heart to those things, and it will radically minister to your heart and mind. Yes, 100%. I know even for me, you know, I'm like the worst when it comes to like memorizing, you know, verses and that kind of thing. I just, it, for whatever reason, it doesn't click. But I realize sure. for me, the more that I'm reading scripture and I'm, you know, getting through it and each repetition to a certain degree, you become more familiar with it. And even if you're not necessarily memorizing the specific words, you, you remember, okay, I remember that this was in this chapter. I remember that. And it's an instant like jogger to where it's like entering your mind. You're, God's using that to point you back to his word and just being familiar with it is huge when it comes to just repeating reading God's word, you know? Excellent, excellent point you bring up there. A lot of people ask me, because I, I recalled a lot of scripture in from memory, and they said, do you sit down and memorize a chapter or two at a time? I said, not at all. I've never done that. Mm-hmm. I've never even done a half a dozen verses at one time. Usually it's just from what you've expressed. After reading it over and over and over again, uh, you get familiar to where not only it's located, but it just becomes part of your heart and mind, part of your being, and that you're taking in that much of God's Word, and the Spirit of God gives the recall for mm-hmm. it. So a great ch- way to uh, memorize Scripture, a great way to know the Lord, a great way then to be able to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Mm-hmm. We all want to be faithful witnesses. There's not many called to the pastorate, but everyone's called to be a witness. Everyone's called to give a testimony for the grace of God and for the hope that lies within us, First Peter three fifteen and 16. So th- this is a great way to do that. Stay in the scriptures. Uh, you know, as we were telling the people Sunday night at our church, no one ever goes liberal by reading their Bible. Right. That's and a very so good point. you want to <laughs> stay in the scriptures and you'll stay on the right course. It's a great tool. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. And I feel like, you know, really when you look at it, and that's a very good point, when you look at a lot of the compromise that we're seeing in the church, whether it's in, and we're going to get to the social justice stuff, because that's one of the biggest yeah. things that, that's really happening right now, whether it's dealing with like revoice and gay Christianity, whether no matter what it is, it seems like in all, in each of those issues, there's less of a focus on what scripture says and more of a focus on like what I feel or what makes sense to me compared to just getting in scripture and just saying, this is what the Bible says. And I feel like that's, that's the continual theme is that people aren't in God's word enough and we need to get more, get back to that in all reality. Yeah, absolutely. It's, well, it's what the reformers referred to as sola scriptura. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is our highest authority and it's sufficient, as Peter says, for all matters of life and godliness. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon again that he said, I wanted so much of the word of God to be in my life that if someone cut me, I would bleed bibline. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are to be. Uh, we are to really drink in continually the truths of God's word. First uh, Peter 2, 2, we are before anything else. We are to crave the word of God. It is foundational to what we do. Like Job says, I've I have uh, treasured your word even more than my necessary food. 
Uh, David, I've considered it more delightful than this world's greatest delicacies, the honey and the honeycomb, or the world's greatest riches, gold and much fine gold. Have we placed a premium on God's word to that end? And uh, it, that should be something we shouldn't have to convince other Christians to do, especially pastors. Uh, this should be the first response that we go to, whether it's first thing in the morning, whether it's in the late night hours, uh, whether it's in between work. You know, they even have great audio Bibles now. So if you have a, a long drive to your work, if you're stuck in L.A. traffic on a commuter run, put in one of the audio Bibles and you'll just hear several chapters uh, you'll be exposed to, read to you. Max McLean has a brilliant one on the entire ESV translation. It's wonderful by Crossway. Mm-hmm. Put that in. And, you know, when you lie down and you rise up and you're going to and you're coming out, that's when Deuteronomy tells parents to train up their children in, in all of the idle moments. Right. Well, same thing for us as adults. In those idle moments, are we filling our hearts and minds with the truth of God's word or with other things? And, and I do think, uh, as we as we delve into some of these cultural issues, the missing voice in so much of this is a clear biblical sound theology and doctrine by which we measure all things that come our way, so that we know that if they're truthful, they'll be glorifying to God. Uh, scripture is very clear, and I think as you and I are going to unfold in this next time, in this next little bit here together, on some of these key issues, Jeff. The fog will dissipate very quickly when we measure them in light of Scripture. Totally. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you. Um, And so, like I said before, you know, we'll kind of get into some of the social justice stuff because I know that, again, that's like one of the biggest things that's really going around online and just in general within the church right now. Um, And we'll get to some of that. But I wanted to briefly touch on the interfaith dialogue. And a lot of that is... I know that the the interfaith dialogue that James White had with Yasser Qadi happened what right. is it a year ago, year and some odd months or you know whatever year and a half. It is. Well, actually, it was in January, I think, of seventeen. Okay, and then uh, it became more news, like in May or June right. of last year, and then it kind of culminated in so many things up through last fall. Yeah, uh, even as talked about even now in the last few months, but. The actual church meeting he had in Memphis with Cotty, I believe, was in January of 2017. Right. And in all reality, it still is a relevant issue because he's already announced that he's going to do round two with, with Yasser Cotty at some point in the near future. Um, yeah. So it is, it is an ongoing thing. It's not like this was just like a one and done. This is, you know, it's over and we're just kind of moving on and trying to hold on to the past. Um, but so when it comes to interfaith dialogues in general what's the what's the main problem with them from a biblical perspective because you have you know the the theory or the explanation that's coming from you know like the james white camp or those that are defending the interfaith dialogues in general is that what's wrong with just having two opposing religious leaders sit on the stage and talk about your differences so that way we can understand each other so in all reality what's the main biblical concern with the ifd well, the interfaith dialogue, I guess for me, there's two or three major concerns. One, it lacks biblical precedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't see it in Scripture at all. Now, it's one thing to have, and I think people get more hung up on the word dialogue uh, than they do on the concern of interfaith. The mm-hmm. interfaith is a is a liberal misnomer uh, for us within the Church. Uh, technically, an interfaith dialogue would say, 
why don't we have a discussion on baptism between Southern Baptists and Presbyterians? Mm-hmm. Uh, believers' baptism and pedo-baptism—that's interfaith. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same construct. We all believe the same gospel, uh, but we can disagree on different things. I, I think it was John Piper years ago that hosted a roundtable on eschatology, and he had three or four main people involved in different opinions. All believers in the Lord. No one would question their salvation, but yet good men can disagree on pre. Uh, or post uh, millennial views, and you know the timing of those views and what Scripture teaches, mm-hmm. uh, and so interfaith in that context can be helpful for people seeing good people together of a common gospel, a con- common faith. Really, uh, you know, uh, the iron sharpening the iron, uh, to use that from Proverbs in a in a very helpful way. That's helpful. But when we're talking about non-believers, and more than non-believers, those that are trained, as Yasser Qadi is, as an imam, who he is also a jihadist, he's also a good friend of Linda Sarsour, mm-hmm. who, and the head of CARE as well. Uh, it, you know, if you remember last year, Linda Sarsour in New York, as part of the Women's March, was talking about overthrowing our government, overthrowing President Trump. Qadi mm-hmm. uh, signs off on what his good friend says. And uh, this is a concern. He's promoted jihad around the globe. Uh, For some reason, James has, and I love James very much. He's a friend, but he's made, I believe, a wrong turn here. Because what he's done is he's tried to promote uh, Islam, maybe even unwittingly, uh, through a dialogue. He thinks he's causing a peaceful attitude communally Mm -hmm. within society as opposed to the violence that we see. Uh, and so he has this very sentimental view associated with this. He's gotten to know Cadi a little bit. I think he's infatuated uh, with Cadi to some degree. I think I tweeted that he has a man crush on him, and that's not too far off the yeah. too far off the distinctive here. Uh, but but there is a there is an issue there fundamentally that when you elevate Islam to to an equal place of Christianity. Mm-hmm. as saying the Quran and the scripture should be debated on equal level. You're diminishing what the Lord has done and said. Let, let me give you an example of this in Acts chapter 17. Sure. This is Paul on Mars Hill. You know this passage yes. so well. We've talked about it before. And when he entered Athens, it says here that his spirit was provoked within him, severely disturbed, because he saw the city was full of idols. Uh Athens was was famous for their idolatry, and he says so. Then he went and he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. What does that mean? For him to reason, Paul was formerly a Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee. His dad was a Pharisee. Only 6,000 Pharisees at the time in Israel. Uh, Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, He thought he was doing God a favor by killing Christians, Philippians 3 says. As to zeal, he was uh, a persecutor of the church, and as to the law found blameless, he had a Ph.D. in the law. Um, So his natural tendency was to go into the synagogues, to present Christ and him crucified, to reason with them. Now, he wasn't trying to put Judaism and Christianity of the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on an equal plane. He had a testimony to bring. Mm-hmm. And he was sharing that from the point of pharisaical 
uh, history in his own life and being a student of the law, that carried tremendous weight stepping into those synagogues and then proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So that's quite different than taking Islam and Christianity. Uh, Paul is giving a witness. The other thing we see is this. Uh, and he was in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be there. Uh, man, I don't know about you. I'm in the marketplace every day. Yeah. Uh, every day I'm at Starbucks. I'm at a different restaurant. I'm at a different place to just uh, relax or have a moment of recreation. And every day, Jeff, almost without fail, I run into non-believers that I get to talk with, that I get to share the gospel with, that ask questions about common things such as marriage and family. Just yesterday, someone, what do you do about raising children? How does this come into play? All these things, practical issues Mm -hmm. that anybody out there will be wrestling with, but I have a chance to relate them back to the truth of God's word. That's being a witness for the cause of Christ. Uh, But then we read this, and this is what was interesting when Paul went to Morris Hill, It says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, that the members of the Arabagus, they're the Stoic philosophers, those of the Epicureans, it said that they said, who is this babbler? You know, they (laughs) thought, what has happened to this man? Is this man totally insane? Is he just babbling away nonsense? Right. Because they were hearing about Jesus and the resurrection. And Jeff, what the most amazing thing is, it says they took him and brought him to the Arabicus, saying, may we know what you now are teaching, this new teaching, it was foreign from their ears, that you are presenting. Uh, This is strange things to us. We wish to know, therefore, more about it. So all of the Athenians would gather at the Arabicus. Paul was an invited guest. I've been there, Mm -hmm. um, maybe not on Mars Hill, but I've been in secular universities. I've been in Uh, different places where people say, will you come and speak to us about the things of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is different for us. Would you engage with us? Primarily, some of that came out of the music context. Mm -hmm. And I'd be at various festivals or universities or when I was dealing with the AIDS issue back in the 80s and early 90s, all kinds of things. We had thousands of people at, uh, at the University of Oregon that I was invited to come and speak of by the gay coalition there on the gospel because they were fascinated. Why would a Christian go to someone who's gay that's dying of HIV in a hospital? Why is that? It Mm -hmm. fascinated them. This was strange to them. Well, I was free to go and to share the gospel. Um, I was there to talk with them about the things of the Lord. But I think what's happened is, in this regard, what, what different ones like James and different ones want to do, and I don't question that maybe he has a good motive in trying to do it, and I don't question that James is my brother in Christ, of course he is, right. and and he's not a heretic, as some have said that he is. He's not that at all, Agreed, but I do totally. believe he's, yeah, I do believe he's wrong in this area, and anyone who participates in the IFD for this reason. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine the prophets of old uh, carrying on uh, a dialogue, a promoted dialogue that mm-hmm. they sponsored was say the prophets of Baal. Yeah. Like I'm just, that, I'm just thinking of like Elijah and he's yes, like, Hey, exactly. let, let's just sit down and have a conversation. <laughs> exactly. On first, on first Corinthians, pardon me, first Kings 18. Yeah, exactly. Um, they were at Mount Carmel mm-hmm. and not only does Yahweh, the true God, 
reveal himself by the fire sent from heaven and lapping up the water and and uh, humiliating the prophets of Baal and so forth. Even Elijah used a lot of sarcasm, saying, hey, maybe your God is on vacation. Maybe he's out there relieving himself. Yeah. Where is your God? Where is Baal? And we know that these were the gods of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's captivity along with Judah and, and Israel at the time. Uh, the, the Molech and Marduk and the Ashtaroth and child sacrifice and all these things. Could you imagine Elijah saying, hey, the prophets of Baal and some of their chief priests that worship at the, at the gods of Baal are going to, they want to get together and talk. And man, let's get along. Why can't we, you know, society's going through a lot of problems. If they saw us partnered together, mm-hmm. we, don't, we can agree to disagree, but wouldn't this be wonderful for humanity? Well, no, it wouldn't be. In fact, yeah. at the end of First, First Kings 18, it ends very poorly for the 450 Baal uh, uh, priests, prophets that, that were there, and the 400 prophets sent by Jezebel. Elijah and his cohort executed all 850 of them after he absolutely obliterated their sacrifice. Right. Uh, now, that's personally, that's my kind of IFD. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's no interfaith there that should be done. And what James, I think, has failed to do here, as well as others engaged with IFD, is the biblical, physical call to repentance. Mm-hmm. If you really care about Yasser Qadi's soul, uh, you don't give them gifts. You don't play footsie with them under the proverbial debate table. You don't, in your organization, sponsor a debate mm-hmm. and even pay for travel and give them an honorarium or a gift for coming. Or, or uh, offering to write a book together or make a video. or Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's the dangerous part. Write a book together. And James was like, boy, you need to make a video about Islam so I can promote your version of Islam to the evangelical community. Could mm-hmm. you imagine... The Lord's saying that about the Pharisees' leaven. Right. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul saying that to Simon the sorcerer or to Elias the magician? The magician. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine, again, the prophets of old saying that to the gods of Baal? Uh, you've just been misrepresented. There's a lot of peaceful people. You guys are nice folks. We'd like to get along with you. Right. Uh, again, I'm not talking about the everyday, in James's case, common Muslim on the street that needs Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I witness uh, a lot of weeks to eight or 10 Muslim young men up here at Starbucks at one of the locations around where I live. Right. And I've had some good discussions with them. Uh, that's one thing. But an imam that is trained in this, that has uh, done, I don't know, 20 or 25 DVDs on promoting Islam and explaining Islam, uh, that does not deny its false claims about the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just think he's playing guys like James, unfortunately. I think Islam wants a voice within the evangelical community. So for those reasons, I don't think it's biblical. It raises a false faith to a level of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It it has caused James and others doing IFDs from calling them publicly to repentance uh, you don't play footsie. You don't act simply nice. You call them to repentance. If people doubt this, read Matthew 23 and our Lord's seven woes of judgment against the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to take that stand when it comes to false teachers of faith 
that still claim to represent Kadi did this. Well, I love Jesus too. Mm-hmm. I believe in Jesus. We mentioned Jesus in the Quran. Right. This is their claim. No, they're false teachers. They're false prophets. There's no truth in them. And I just think interfaith dialogue has been part of the erosion of what's gone on with men of God who know better and should stand for biblical Christianity uncompromised. And I guess the third reason I'm against this is that any Christian that could go into a mosque and call Muhammad a false prophet, which he is, Mm -hmm. and called Allah a false god, which he is, Mm -hmm. and called the Quran a false book, which it is, and then they give little gifts and laugh it up at the end, something has happened in translation. Because most of the time, your life would be threatened, you'd be tossed out on the street, there'd be physical altercation. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that we we should love Yasser Qadi enough to preach the true gospel to him and call him publicly to repentance, meaning repent of all things Islam, turn your back on the false claims of the satanic inspired faith of Islam and all things of Sharia and follow Jesus Christ. I'd love to see my brother in Christ call him to that. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, for sure. You know, and but, but I think kind of springboarding off of what you were kind of saying right here is I feel like what's happened in this debate is it's kind of exposed a lot of different peripheral issues that kind of goes along with the, the interfaith dialogue. And I think a lot of it comes down to what do specific words and passages mean? What actually happened? Like one of the things that was brought up, did Jesus himself participate in an interfaith dialogue? You know, like there was one claim was Jesus doing interfaith dialogues with the Pharisees. And then the other one was, was he participating in interfaith dialogue with the Samaritan woman? And so what would be the biblical response to that? If they're saying that that's the precedence is Jesus did it. So why can't we? Boy, they're sounding more and more like uh, political liberals than I've given them credit for. (laughs) Uh, No, you know, in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 24, on the account of Jesus saying, I must need go through Samaria. And he meets a Samaritan woman at high noon at the well. It was crossing racial boundaries. Uh, He was seen as a man with a a woman who had a seedy past. five husbands and a paramour waiting at home. Mm -hmm. But he was unashamed to be seen in public with her. He was sharing about the truths of Messiah, and she was asking questions. There was no debate. She didn't come prepared with Samaritan views of faith and whatever she believed in terms of who was God. She was hoping for Messiah and so forth, but the Lord revealed himself to her, called her, to repentance. Uh, She came and the Lord used her to turn Samaria upside down for him and for the gospel. It was a profound discussion on worship and on Jesus as being Messiah. In fact, he says, it is I who stand before you and he. And so this is the thing. That's not an interfaith dialogue. We have a word for it. It's called witnessing. Mm -hmm. It's called representing Christ. Again, I think people get hung up on the word dialogue. Are we to have conversations with unsafe people? Yes, immense ones, long ones, Mm -hmm. tireless ones, over weeks and months and years if necessary. Of course, the dialogue is necessary. The issue is interfaith. It wasn't that James was on the street and happened to run into a Muslim or an imam, and he starts to share the truth claims of Christ. Mm -hmm. He promoted this. His organization sponsored this. Uh, This wasn't witnessing. 
this was a publicly promoted thing that was obviously used for the promotion of his own work and ministry. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate. Yeah. And so there, it should not be confused with witnessing. It should not be confused with going to Speaker's Corner in England, right in downtown London at Hyde Park, right. and having at it with those that disagree with the claims of Christ. We should all go into the world and share Christ and proclaim his gospel, be faithful witnesses. But meeting with leaders of other religions, false religions, and especially one as violent and corrupt as Islam is, is raising Islam to a place it doesn't belong. But more importantly, it is lowering Christianity. Uh, When they put the scriptures and, and the Quran on the same plane, and they say, we want to give the same weights and measures to both, that does an injustice to God's word. Uh, The Quran is nowhere near. uh, It's not an inspired writing. If it is inspired, it's it's inspired by what Muhammad said initially, that he thought he was possessed by a demon and he was writing something inspired by satanic forces. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, That's the one of the few times I'll agree with Muhammad that he was (laughs) under the control of demonic forces. Yeah. But I think that this in our day, Jeff, the, the initial question that I think that we have to ask ourselves as proclaimers of the truth of God's word is we must go into all the world and take every captive into the obedience of Christ by the word of God. And again, we can speak that truth in love. We don't have to be undesirable or offensive in and of ourselves, but we should not uh, put those other false claims of other religions, and they are false teachers, on the same plane as Christianity, and we should have the courage to resist that temptation. But in mm-hmm. today's world of of this kind of inclusivism that's going on with Christianity, people want to be liked rather than being prophetic. Right. And we're called to be preachers of the word, uh, not sentimental representations uh, to other faiths where we can all get along. Mm-hmm. That's not our purpose. Right. And, you know, and since you mentioned uh, the fact that you know, he is a false teacher. How does yes. that, how does that play into, I believe it's, what is it? Second John seven through 11, where it's specifically talking about how we're supposed to respond to false teachers and not even to greet them. And, you know, and, or else you're participating in their wicked ways. Um, yeah. how does that play out? Because one of, one of the arguments I believe was from James White and a lot of his defenders was that this is dealing with those who claim to be Christians and and then the other argument was that this is only dealing with those who are Christians, number one, and number two, those Christians who deny the deity of Christ, which doesn't even make any logical sense to me at all. Uh, no, so, that's right. So how does Second John 7 to 11 play in, if at all, uh, dealing with these interfaith dialogues? Well, let me read it here. Uh, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Uh, and so there we know there's one characteristic of them. They are deceivers, and that's evident of because they are angels of light uh, after the father of all deceptions, Satan himself, in Second Corinthians 11. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. He's not talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord or professing believers who maybe have uh, an incomplete understanding on certain issues. He's talking about deceivers, those who are antichrists in and of their own profession. 
He says, watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for that may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ literally leaves it or just passes over it. They may have been professing believers at one point, but clearly they're apostate. Mm -hmm. If John calls them deceivers, if John calls them antichrists, that is not descriptive of truly born-again people that maybe are off a little bit or have some theological tweaking that needs to be done. Right. But then we see here, it says, whoever abides, well, first of all, he says, and does not abide in the teachings of Christ, does not have God. So now we know that they're non-believers, they're deceivers, they are antichrists, and they do not know the Lord. They do not have God. Why? Because they reject the teaching of Jesus Christ. And what's that teaching? It's the gospel. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, lived a sinless life, crucified, buried, risen again on the third day, bodily ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, and one day will be returning in glory to bring home his people. And so they don't abide in that. And so it says here, whoever abides in the teaching, though, has both the Father and the Son. That's how you know. There's obedience to the truth of the gospel. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, he doesn't say that they're representing Christ in the teaching mm -hmm. and that they're simply maybe often a little bit. It's this teaching, that teaching specifically that we just read. It says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Uh, there is nothing of Christianity involved in these deceivers, in these false teachers, what Peter would call a false prophet. They did not only originate in the church. Of course, do we see some false teachers come out of the church? Absolutely. Do we see some that are trying to gain an audience within the church? Absolutely. And so this doesn't say that all false teachers originate as truly professing brothers or sisters in Christ, and they've just erred a little bit. Mm -hmm. These are antichrists. These are deceivers. They do not know God. They have not abided in the gospel. They do not believe the teaching about Christ. And John's inference is clear. Someone comes knocking at your door, and they're not representing this biblical teaching, this biblical gospel. Don't even enter them into your home. Why? In that culture, it was considered a sign of intimacy and real friendship mm -hmm. to bring someone into your home much more than it is now. Right. You were being identified with that person. You would probably give them food and clothing if they needed it, uh, maybe a meal or two, allow them to lodge with you. Uh, that showed a real camaraderie. And so John is saying, don't let them latch on to you. And it's not that they knew who they were. Someone comes to you. So let's bring this into our world. Mm -hmm. It's easy to say if someone shows up with an Anton LaVey satanic Bible, right. Don't let him into your house. Yeah. A no-brainer, of obvious. course. That's yeah. <laughs> uh, Some imams, some Muslim kids come saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you about the truth of the Quran. You don't let him in, into your house. Now, what I do with people, I say, hey, wait here for a minute. If it's warm out, I'll bring him a glass of water, or iced tea or something, whatever we have. Mm -hmm. And I'll sit with them outside. I'll talk with them about the things of the Lord. Let's bring that circle in a little tighter. What if a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or someone like this comes who carries a Bible, say they believe in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of this Bible. Mm -hmm. They deny the Trinity. Uh, they believe that Jesus is the product of a male and female 
deity sexual union in the past where Jesus simply is now the older brother of Lucifer or that he didn't exist at all, that he's Michael the archangel who came and put on flesh. Um, These are false faiths as well. We should not entertain them into our homes, let alone our churches. Mm -hmm. So I I think, I I know James teaching on this and others, uh, they've really mischaracterized 2 John here, uh, 7 to 11. Uh, This is not exclusively uh, people that have erred in theology that were once a part of a church that John knew, that the congregates knew, that were saying, beware. Can false teachers breed themselves within a church wanting to garner an audience? Absolutely. Can they mostly come from the outside wanting access, as Yasser Qadi does to evangelicals, Mm -hmm. wanting access to the church, wanting access to the Christian people, wanting a voice within evangelicalism to extend their own tentacles of reach and and their own financial success? Yes, that Mm -hmm. can happen. So I thought their argument was excessively weak. Uh, Qadi is a false teacher. Mm-hmm. He represents a different God, a different Bible, a different prophet, uh, and he and the Quran completely is blasphemous against the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a false system of faith. And so, therefore, I think they're dancing uh, around this issue quite a right. bit right. To, to say that. So let's be clear. Uh, false teachers do exist. Uh, we know that Paul, in fact, calls them what they propagate in First Timothy 4, 1 and 2, doctrines of demons. Mm-hmm. That's the source of all of this. So we can't soft-shoe what the Holy Spirit is so clearly defined. So I would respectfully disagree with those that try to say Second John 7 to 11 doesn't apply to Cadi. Of course it does. Okay, for sure. Now, when take, taking that a step further, because it the passage does say that if you are greeting them, that you're taking part in their wicked works. So... Yeah. So in one of the things that I've heard from the from the other side, you know, the critics of like James White would be that that means that now James White's participating in the wicked works of Yasser Qadi. And that would that then mean that second John then also applies to James White? Like how many how many degrees does that does that apply or is that only in relation to the first degree, the person who's greeting them or bringing them into their house kind of a thing? Yeah, you know, I. John says it clearly, uh, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house to give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in the wicked work. So it's not talking about, hello, how are you, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Right. Uh, He is talking about the greeting in the context of letting them enter your home Mm -hmm. and showing intimacy that way in terms of uh, fellowship or Mm -hmm. friendship or partnership that way. Uh, so I wouldn't apply that to simply a greeting that way. However, right. where I do think it's, it is expanding that boundary, when you invite a man like Cadi into the local church uh, to have a public debate, uh, and there's not the call of repentance, and there wasn't a clear description of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore a complete gospel was not presented. And you're doing this in the context of a church. Uh, why? Mm-hmm. Why bring them into the local church where some people there are going to be exposed to error? Now, I know those on one side will say, well, isn't the Lord faithful to protect his own and he'll complete them? He's given them assurance for all of eternity. Islam can't sway any of them. Well, mm-hmm. that's true. But at no time uh, do we hear Paul saying, don't worry about the leaven 
of the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. We don't even hear Jesus say that. Don't worry about the little leaven. He says, worry about it. Be concerned about it. Be disciplined. Be discerning about it. Don't allow it in to your teaching. Don't allow it into your fellowship. Don't allow it into your churches. Um, of course, God keeps his own for eternity, but we'd never expose believers to unsound doctrine uh, under the guise of someone else so that we can look good in a debate with them. That debate should be really a monologue. Mm-hmm. It should be, I'm calling you to repentance. Uh, listen, you want to go out to the street corners and, and you want it like Paul was invited to the Oropagus in Acts 17 that we talked about earlier. If Cadi invites him and says, Dr. Wet, I'd love to have you come to town. I'd like to discuss things with you about the Christian faith and about Islam. Well, take the invitation and go there with one purpose in mind, not to get invited back, but to proclaim the gospel. Right. And to show the the deviant, unbiblical parts of, of Islam, to show the exalted God that we serve in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to show the perfection of the, <clears throat> of the scriptures, and to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen again, and what the forgiveness of sins looks like. Uh, I get that. That's a good thing, as Paul did on Mars Hill. But when your organization is promoting an event with non-believers continually within churches, exposing churches to so much error and false teaching and false religion, you know, you in fact, you don't know the hearts and minds of those believers that are there. And we are to be careful to what we expose Christians to in matters of those things. Uh, and it's just we're, we're giving them a platform that they do not deserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so interfaith dialogue, uh, all three of those words do not resonate biblically under any shape or form uh, scripturally. We don't see the Lord, the apostles, the prophets engaged in nice, pleasant discussions that they have promoted with enemies of the cross, as Paul would call them. We just don't see it. Mm-hmm. Now, individual members of Islam, individual non-believers in the highways and byways, we're to go with them, and we're to go with with the truth of the gospel and showing love for our neighbor and walking with them and sitting with them. That is a wonderful privilege in being a witness for the cause of Christ. But at no time, if one of them says, well, I'm a woman pastor of a Unitarian church, would you... Uh, can can we come to your church and why don't we have a community meeting where both of us are on the platform and you present your side and I'll present my side? Right. Not a chance. Mm-hmm. It's not scriptural. It introduces needlessly people to air and there will be leaven that is introduced to maybe young, unsuspecting believers that think, wow, you know what Cotty said that I, I'm going to look into that a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Um it's not just about eternal security. It's about guarding the truth and guarding the flock. And they're doing this in such a haphazard, casual way that I'm concerned that they're saying, because God is greater than anything, let the leaven in. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Even if it pollutes part of the church, God is still sovereign. Well, that is that is blaspheming, as it were, the character of God in the display of that kind of practice, right. personally. And, and, and in all reality, that was one of the arguments, was that Islam isn't a, a spiritual threat to the church because of God's sovereignty and because we can't lose our salvation, that one, you know, once we're saved, we're saved, we're not going to lose our salvation if we're led astray. So, in, but, then you, but then you just said that it is blasphemy to be going kind of down that route. So 
how how does that play out? Like, how is Islam a threat, a spiritual threat to the church if we well, if we can't no, lose our salvation? Yeah, well, same thing as Israel. Why were the Baal gods a threat to Israel? Why was the Lord continually? Why did He lead them into captivity for seventy years? They had forgotten the Lord their God. He still considered them His people. Mm-hmm. But you have not re- you have not obeyed me. You have not walked in my statutes, and we see the the lure of false religion doing this. What was the warning to Solomon with his seven hundred wives and his three hundred concubines? Be beware; they will lead your heart after other gods. This is David's son. This is the king that the Holy Spirit had anointed. He was under the sovereign command of Yahweh in building the temple and in leading a nation. And what happened? His heart was swayed through his wives to other gods. Uh, We have to be careful of this. Uh, We are never to entertain error thinking we're not vulnerable. We have to guard the trust on this. Uh, let me let me throw out this to you as we maybe can transition to another area here, sure. Jeff. It's the same thing. Some of the biggest supporters of James with IFD were signers of the SJG, mm-hmm. of the sovereign of the social justice and gospel statement that recently came out. There's some good parts to that statement. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it was flabby uh, in some parts. It it sounded to me rushed and quickly put together, reactionary rather than. Uh, declarative rather than polemic. Mm-hmm. The scripture was only mentioned as a footnote with little references at the bottom of the paragraph. It wasn't explained core central. Uh, they had their statements, but the scripture was not central to it. Mm-hmm. There were no categories on the Soros money allurement that has happened throughout the years. There was nothing there of church restoration and uh, calling them to repentance. There was no naming of names. Who are these people that they're concerned about that are infiltrating the church, mm-hmm. that are once brothers that they said were faithful and trustworthy, are spiritual guides? That sounded so new age to me. Right. Um, you know, so there was parts of the statement that I could say amen to, but there was parts that were woefully lacking in the entire statement. There's nothing that defines social justice. What is it? Mm-hmm. Is justice and loving your neighbor and caring for the poor and disenfranchised different than societal justice. Uh, If you've ever read Karl Popper from the 1940s, 1945, put out by Princeton, Open Society, this shows you the roots of George Soros and the current trends of what's going on today. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we speak of the church being infiltrated by Tim Keller with neo-Marxism and and so forth, social justice warriors, the critical race theory, white privilege movement, all of these things, some of the same people that champion Jim, mm-hmm. that said, oh, we don't have to worry about Islam coming. Right. What's the spiritual danger? God's in control. Well, then I want to say to those gentlemen that I really love and respect, uh, well, then, if you don't think Islam is a threat, why is social justice warriors a threat? That, that's a very uh, good point. Why, why is the political emphasis of that a, a concern to you if Islam right. is not a concern? If the false teachings of Muhammad that are trying to corrupt the scriptures and mix a little Jesus with the false prophecies of, of Muhammad, if even if he had those prophecies, who mm-hmm. knows? Uh, so why is it that you're so trumpeting against, say, the prosperity gospel? 
It's a false gospel. It's or, a false or, system. Or, or word of faith or word any of, of faith, those. Yeah. Which we know most of those people do not know the Lord because they have a different Jesus they serve. They have a different view of Scripture, a different God. Um, so why is social justice warriors uh, from a secular standpoint, from a political standpoint? And now you see what they would consider as a marriage between the social justice movement and biblical Christianity coming together. Oh, are you you saying that there's a little leaven maybe that could come into the church? Yeah. You don't have to worry about people. Uh, the gospel's not going to be diluted. The word of God is not going to be corrupted. The church is not going to be infiltrated. And if it is, God is sovereign. He can protect his own for eternity. Mm-hmm. He knows his sheep. His sheep knows his voice. What's the big deal? Right. So if we take that view of what they represented with Islam, it undercuts completely some of these really smaller issues than what the tr- the issue is of Christianity and Islam mm-hmm. and the marriage that that could have. So yes. I, I think they're being terribly inconsistent with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, that makes perfect sense. And that, that's a very good point about, you know, it's, it's in all reality, it's, it's a double standard. You know, it's yes. you're, hol- you're holding one side to one standard, not another side to a, a different standard. And it's just it's it's a lot of chaos and it, I yeah. think it, it creates confusion. It creates, uh, you know, people like what, what's going on? Why, why do we care about one and not the other? And so I think, I think that that's that in and of itself is kind of dangerous in all reality. Well, and you know what, Jeff, one of, one of the big things here is this is a classic case for IFD. Mm-hmm. Why not bring, and I, I don't mind throwing out some names here because I know who these guys were referring to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the gospel coalition. It's the ERLC. Uh, it's Dr. Russell Moore. It's Tim Keller. Mm-hmm. It's anyone associated with those organizations. Ligon Duncan. Um, it's C.J. Mahaney. It's Matt Chandler. Uh, it's Kevin DeYoung. Uh, you know, even though some would say, well, Kevin's not totally bought into it yet, but he's part of it. He's never turned his back on it. Uh, they own him, lock, mm-hmm. stock, and barrel. Right. Um, you know, when you have different ones like this that have promoted this, uh, when they're part of the TGC. Now, uh, that includes Mark Dever uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, he's part of the TGC. Now, what happens is this has increased itself out to the Southern Baptist Convention, specifically to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Al Moeller, who I consider a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also have this on the PCA side with Covenant Seminary and some of the great PCA pastors of uh, the conservative arm of the Presbyterian Reformed area. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a real heartbreak that guys are capitulating to this. Uh, that's why I thought the statement was woefully lacking. It had no teeth. It had no weight to it. If you sign it, fine. What is it? What does it mean? These guys have to stop ministering tomorrow? Well, of course not. Even right. the document says the ones that initiated this have no ecclesiastical authority. But I tell you what would have been helpful, if, and it would have added to the credibility of it, because these are men that, that most of the signers have shared a platform with. Mm-hmm. Why not, with Piper and the ones I've just mentioned, why not send this statement to them privately first mm-hmm. with a letter saying, brothers, we love you, but this is a call to repentance for you. Right. You're our brothers in Christ, but your heart is being swayed to things that are unbiblical, and you're being swayed by the love of money through George Soros, the evangelical immigration you know, trade group, and EIT, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So bottom line is, uh, how is that... Uh, 
how is that consistent with biblical Christianity? We need to call you to repentance. And then to send a copy of that letter and statement to their individual churches, either where they serve or where they attend. Mm-hmm. And say to that local leadership, we are, we are calling you uh, to examine these men under church restoration to see if they have been swayed by error, if they have a blind spot in their life, and to put them in a process of church restoration and call them to repentance. Mm-hmm. Then come out with a statement. I think that would have been helpful. I think doing that, people would have thought, wow, they're really concerned about their repentance. They're concerned about their soul. Well, I, man, I don't want to see Mark Dever involved in this stuff. Right. I, I don't want to see anybody at TGC involved in this stuff, D.A. Carson included. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see John Piper go down this sentimental, white privilege kind of silliness that he's been involved with. Or any of these guys, these are my brothers in Christ. Uh, they need to be called to repentance. Do I think that they're Christians? Yes, mm-hmm. of course. But uh, and, and, and I'll put Keller in a separate arm because he's introduced neo-Marxism for so many years. Yeah, uh, he's, in a, he's in a bit of a different category. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these other men, they're brothers in Christ. Well, we need to love them enough to do what Paul did with Peter in Galatians 2. He named Peter. He confronted him publicly because Peter wasn't being straightforward about the gospel. Right. And that's what needs to happen here. The signers should put down their names as to who the initial drafters were, not just the initial signers, who actually wrote this. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, name the men's name that is pinpointing the encroachment of error upon the local church. Mm-hmm. And then call pastors around the country. Because, I, man, I have so much faith in local pastors yeah. that they're not going to say, well, listen, if Mark Dever with Southern Baptist signs off in this. I'm going to follow Mark. No, I don't believe so. Mm-hmm. As brilliant as Mark is in his education, and he's a wonderful pastor, but this is a concern. This is a grave concern that he's signing off on this. He's promoting other conferences that espouse this nonsense. Because of that, I think hundreds of pastors, thousands around this nation, are not going to follow these guys' lead, are not going to stand the test. And so the dozen or so that are kind of leading the charge through the seminaries and into the PCA, into the Southern Baptist Convention, they need to be called to repentance. But at the same time, uh, they should have to answer to their own local churches under their own eldership and leadership. That's scriptural. And you cannot bring a charge against an elder except with two or three witnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, that is also biblical. So we need to have an opportunity uh, to see the scriptures honored in how their lives are dealt with. It's not enough to write an article, put it out on Twitter, and say, boy, I've exposed this. Right. I've really done the job. They need to be walked through the process of restoration. And as a brother or sister in Christ, they will have to repent of those things. One gentleman asked me today on Twitter, he said, well, Steve, um, you know, man, they're into so much money in all these things through the Soros Foundation mm-hmm. uh, and so forth, through the EIT and, and so forth, uh, isn't this something that's impossible to to have them turn away from? I said, no, it's called repentance. Mm-hmm. No matter how deep they're in it, they can repent of that. And as a genuine brother in Christ or sister in Christ, they should repent of it. But then this document needs to be rewritten with their repentance in mind, not just a, a superficial addressing of the social justice issue. Right, for sure. And, you know, and I think that, that that's the key is that I feel like 
a lot of these guys that have really spearheaded this statement in in a rebuttal to the social justice, which in all reality they're on the right side in the sense of they're opposing social justice. Absolutely. So we need so we need to give yep. them credit there. Like it's not it's Absolutely. not just that they're wrong. It's it just seemed kind of rushed and not entirely focused on all the right things. Um, but in all reality, I think that one of the concerns is that they've gone so long of being silent. You know, there's been a handful of voices. I know you're, you're included in there as well that have been really raising the alarm of this social justice issue. That's really been infiltrating the church for years in all reality. It's not like this is a brand new thing that just came out yesterday. And so it's almost like they waited until it was too late and then they came out with kind of the rush statement and then it's like, okay, now what did we accomplish? Like literally I don't, I don't see anything being accomplished right now except just there's a statement out there. <laughs> no, that's right. It's a shot across the bow, but it, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be short lived. Mm-hmm. It's got to have some weight and teeth to it. But let me read you a statement yeah. that has some teeth to it. Okay, for sure. This came out on August 30th, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Its update was done on September 5th. And this was done as a public joint statement uh, that came out during the increasing time between the Chinese government and, the, and China's Christian community. Uh, and it says here, the signers declare, for the sake of the gospel, we are prepared to bear all losses, even the loss of our own freedom and our own lives. Now, this is in China, mm-hmm. where the underground church is strong. But where these dear men and women and families, but these dear men pastors of these faithful churches, many of them reformed, they're having the crosses ripped out of them. They're being carried off to jail. Some are being persecuted and tortured. Lives are at stake. And here it says, on August 30th, a group of Chinese Christian pastors and leaders issued a joint statement, a declaration for the sake of the Christian faith that comes at a time of increasing tension between the Chinese government and the China's Christian community. And many believe this marks a significant moment in the country's church and state relations. The state was asking them to sing red songs, tribute songs during worship to the government. Oh, really? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, they were, they're, they're taking down their churches. They're denying them leases. They're denying them the ability to congregate mm-hmm. and so forth. And so, let me let me tell you how this statement unfolds itself. I'll read you just a few brief sections. Yeah. It says, We believe and are obligated to teach the world that the one true and living triune God is the creator of the universe of the world and of all people. All men should worship God and not any man or thing. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that all men, from national leaders to beggars and prisoners, have sinned, that they will die once and then be judged in righteousness. Apart from the grace and redemption of God, all men would eternally perish. We believe we are obligated to teach the world that the crucified and risen Jesus is the only head of the global church and the sole savior of all mankind and the everlasting ruler and supreme judge of the universe. To all who repent and believe in him, God will give eternal life and an eternal kingdom. Mm -hmm. I mean... That has teeth. Yes. They're putting their lives on the line. They're naming who it's addressed to, the Chinese government. They mention President Xi in here and others. Um, I won't read this all to you, but um, here it says, we are even more obligated to proclaim good news to the authorities and all society. Mm-hmm. Here's their balance. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the Savior and King of mankind, 
in order to save us sinners, was killed, buried, and rose from the dead by the power of God, destroying the power of sin and death. In his love and compassion, God has prepared forgiveness and salvation for all who are willing to believe in Jesus, including Chinese people. Mm -hmm. At any time, anyone can repent from any sin, turn to Christ, fear God, obtain eternal life, and bring great blessing and bring great blessing from God upon his family and country. And so they're calling here, um, and and they go on to say, it is the source and final authority, the Bible, the revelation, the word of God for all righteousness. If the will of any political party, the laws of any government, and the commands of any man directly violate the teachings of the Bible— Harming men's souls and opposing the gospel proclaimed by the church, we are obligated to obey God rather than men, and we are obligated to teach the members of our churches to do the same thing. They go on to say that they pray for the Chinese people. They pray for their society. They pray for the leaders of the Chinese government to come to Jesus Christ in salvation. And then they end with this here. They say, for this reason, we are obligated to teach all believers— that all true churches in China that belong to Christ must hold to the principle of the separation of church and state and must proclaim Christ as the sole head of the church. We declare that in matters of external conduct, churches are willing to accept lawful oversight by civil administration or other government departments or other social organizations do. But under no circumstances will we lead our churches to join a religious administration department or to accept any kind of affiliation. We will also not accept any ban or fine imposed on our churches due to our faith. For the sake of the gospel, we are prepared to bear all losses, even the loss of our own freedom. Earlier, they say all of our own rights, their goods, and our very lives, Mm -hmm. end quote. Now, do you see the difference? Yes. Do you see the difference between that that statement? That is a statement. That is a statement. And what I'm saying is, if social justice warrior beliefs is such an encroachment upon the gospel, is such deadly impact upon the church, is Mm -hmm. such a minimize and depreciation of God's word, how come the social justice and gospel statement didn't read more like the one I just read here than the one that it is. Mm -hmm. And, and I say this with love in my heart for any of these brothers that drafted this statement, how is it the statement comes out one week and the next week, some of those same signers are on the platform with the very ones that they're concerned about calling them to repentance. Exactly. Why isn't that happening? Mm -hmm. Why didn't the call for repentance happen How could they partner on the same stage together? There are several little inconsistencies, and I get it. They're friends. Mm -hmm. These are friends that people have ministered to, that they've had in their churches. They've shared and broke bread together. They've worshiped the Lord together. And it should come with tears, and it should come as a heartbreak that many of these dear Christian men, they're not our spiritual guys, but many of them served as pastors, as authors, We've listened to their sermons. We've benefited from their study of God's word. And now their hearts have been distracted and wooed into a different direction, Jeff. Mm-hmm. That's something that shouldn't be tolerated. But the issue is not simply writing articles exposing them. It's the biblical call to repentance and walking them through church restoration biblically that God will be glorified. For sure. And, and you know, and I feel like, 
in all reality, this is kind of I am, I feel like a lot of this social justice stuff. It's re- really all it is is it's liberal ideology that's infiltrating the church and then changing our theology. And that's really kind of come out of I want to say it was like what ten years ago back when it was. Uh, like the whole Mark Driscoll and the young reformed and restless and all right. that kind of stuff. And then he just kind of kept going. But historically the reformed theology has been, has been the most grounded and the most obviously like biblically focused group oh, within, within the church. Why, absolutely. why is it that I feel like over, especially like the last year, year and a half, why has there been so much compromise, especially on this social justice stuff within the reformed camp more than I think I've seen in quite a long time at all, you know? Yeah, well, it's a fair question. Um, I, I'm concerned as well. I'm not sure why. I, I think a lot of Reformed churches are like us. They're under 100 people. Mm-hmm. And and people think that bigger is always better, and it's not, especially right. in the local church. 85% of churches in America are under 150 people. Uh, the mega churches have really missed it in certain significant ways, thinking the more the merrier and the more numbers means more ministry. It doesn't necessarily mean more biblical ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there could be a threat of saying, boy, we're losing some numbers. How do we gain them back? We don't want to be insensitive to the cultural needs that are out there. But, you know, I, I, I can speak to this kind of directly. Since my first step on a stage in the 1970s, I've done work for hunger organizations for 40 years. Uh, I spoke out and ministered to people on the AIDS issue, especially when it was primarily affecting the gay community initially, and would go to hospitals and share the gospel with these dear people that needed a dying Savior, mm-hmm. it w- needed a, that were dying that needed a Savior. Right. Yeah. Um, that here, uh, our banner read, God's holiness not compromised, yet his mercy not restrained. Uh, that's the gospel. We don't compromise God's holiness to minister to a lost world. God's holiness cannot be divorced from his command to us to love our neighbor. But when we love our neighbor without that holiness, we're seeing the sentimental SJW thing that permeates the church and guys are falling for it. Mm -hmm. And then if we only see hard-headed theology without love for neighbor, then we might just say, let's spout out a few doctrinal axioms and think we've really done our duty. It's both. We love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then we love our neighbor as ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that takes grace and it takes biblical truth to go to. I think, though, a bigger issue is happening. Um, you know, when the Dordian Council met uh, surrounding uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism, mm-hmm. they met for a little bit over a year. They had 154 meetings. Dozens upon dozens of faithful pastors and men got together in the Netherlands to discuss the charges of the remonstrance, which was representing Joseph Arminius uh, against, now Calvin had already been home with the Lord many years, against the doctrines of grace, against Mm -hmm. the solas of the Reformation. And so what happened? They met over a long period of time. Think of it, 154 meetings, because they saw the threat of Arminianism as being explosively damning to the church at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if these dear brothers that think that SJW is this kind of explosive damning effect upon the gospel, upon the authority of Scripture, upon the the purity and the holiness and and the grace of the local church, then take a year. Mm-hmm. Have 150 meetings, right. garnered dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people 
uh, faithful pastors, faithful men that you can garner wisdom together and seek the Lord and make a statement that's worthy of the time and attention that the word of God and the glory of Christ really demands. Uh, in the Reformed faith, that's part of our heritage. Mm-hmm. So I don't know why some of these men, uh, Mark Devers Reformed and only in soteriology, Ligon Duncan is closer. He's Reformed in ecclesiology and other aspects as well. Uh, but Ligon has bought into this lock, stock, and barrel. I don't know why. Ligon, right. I'm sorry if you're watching this. You have, and I, I'm deeply concerned. I'm praying for you, brother. Um, you know, there are several that have done this. I, I think the whole Driscoll influence, the Matt Chandler influence, um, a lot of these guys claiming to be Reformed. I didn't call them uh, uh, young, Reformed, and restless. I called them young, Reformed, and clueless. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think they understood really much theology, and it's playing out with both Mark and, and Matt Chandler now mm-hmm. uh, in, in some of the doctrinal nuttiness they're involved with. So I think what's happened is Reformed has been a buzzword thrown around, at best only in matters of soteriology, Jeff, Mm -hmm. rather than in all areas of of life and faith in Christ. And so we have to be careful of not demeaning uh, Reformed theology and Mm -hmm. the Reformed faith. We stand uh, in the Reformed tradition. Listen, whatever Calvin taught, he got it from Augustine. You know, he got it 1,200 years earlier, you know, yeah. as it were, from Augustine's teaching. Augustine stood on the shoulders of the apostles and the early church fathers, the, the great divines of the first and second century, and then the apostles, and then ultimately the, the Lord himself, and then the great prophets and the law and the, 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 the prophets of the Old Testament. The Reformed faith stands on that history together. So... Are there pastors of the Reformed faith that have been swayed into some of this? Yes, but they don't represent the Reformed faith any more than a billy goat represents Beethoven. Right. Uh, this is something that we have to reclaim and to say, brothers, we love you, but we need to hold them accountable to a biblical worldview, a biblical ethic. And I'm not seeing that done. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we ought to have a, a, a group of men, and I'd like to be included in that, with all these other brothers that these other men are concerned about. And let's sit for several days, if necessary, and reason with them out of the truth of God's word. And then if after that, if they reject sound doctrine, then that has to be stated, and Mm -hmm. then we hand them over to discipline at the local church level. Right. I mean, in all reality, that that makes perfect sense, too. Because I just, I feel like, and again, this goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning of the podcast, was nobody's really talking together anymore. Nobody's like conversing and debating and let's wrestle with these issues. Everybody's just talking and they're talking at conferences and everything's monologues and nobody's actually like, well, here's your point. Let me refute that. Or maybe you actually made a better point and I'll accept it. You know, like there's, there's none, there's none of the wrestling. Let me, let me me just say this, that conversation is happening, but Mm -hmm. it's behind the scenes and it's not really thorough and there's no cost to it. Mm Mm-hmm. In other words, could you imagine if, say, a conference that has thousands of pastors coming to their conference next year mm-hmm. were to say to all of those men that have participated in some of those conferences that are involved in SJW, TGC, ERLC, even as a offshoot going into the LGBT issues and compromising there, right. not believing that same-sex marriage is, is biblical, but yet they're acquiescing Mm -hmm. uh, entrance of that group as being legitimate 
part of Christianity, right. whatever it may be. Could you imagine if some of the great voices that we have for the kingdom were to say this year, folks, I've had to disinvite every one of my keynote speakers this year mm-hmm. uh, because their, their hearts are in a different direction. I've talked with them. A group of us met with them. And they're, they're off into what I would call doctrinal error. I'm concerned for them. It may just be, say, that one pastor and a couple of his associate pastors at the church. And maybe that's it. And to say, I hope you'll still come. If you want a refund, we'll give it to you. Right. But I hope you still come. We're going to pray together. We're going to ask the Lord for Reformation Revival to sweep through the church in America. Mm-hmm. We're going to preach on sound doctrine and what it really means to guard the trust and to have the gift of discernment that that weighs uh, uh, by spiritual gift uh, the ability to discern between uh, doctrinal righteousness and doctrinal error, mm-hmm. the truth of God and and the deceptiveness of the enemy. Um, I think that would send shockwaves through the body of Christ. Yeah. And and you know the seminaries they're they're not really biblical institutions anyway. They're places of a university educational model. Okay, I get that the seminaries are drifting, but they don't lead the charge for the local church. Right. And Jeff, I'm telling you, if your listeners can grapple one thing from our time together here tonight, it's this, is that there are thousands of faithful men of God. They are my heroes that are pastoring small churches, average-sized churches, but they're holding fast the faith. They're guarding the trust. They're preaching the word. They're contending for the faith. They're giving a reason for the hope that's in them. They are discipling their people. They're not afraid to confront sin. They faithfully walk people through church restoration. They, they're involved by God's grace of seeing families healed and those that are walking through tremendous illnesses, you know, comforted in their sorrow and the encouragement that they need maybe through the home going to loved one. These are the guys going to the homes. These are the men that are practicing hospitality. These are the dear pastors that are going to the jails saying, you might be chained, but the word of God is never chained. Let me show you the way to freedom in Christ. These are dear men of God. The seminaries, okay, a lot of them have caved doesn't mean a thing in terms of the body of Christ. It means very little. And the heads of those seminaries mean even less in terms of what they perceive as their authority. Mm-hmm. But the pastors is where this issue will be won. And my brothers in Christ, if you are a pastor listening to Jeff and I, man, hold fast the faith. Uh, John MacArthur taught me something years ago, Jeff, I've never forgotten. He said, Steve, give loyalty to no man except Jesus Christ the Lord. Right. Give loyalty to no man except Jesus Christ the Lord. And so I have to say that for for my dear friend John tonight, Mm -hmm. is to say, John, lead the charge here, brother. Right. So many pastors respect you and love you and look to you, including this one. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need a voice of your level and years in ministry to say this far and no farther. Mm -hmm. More than just a statement. But we need to see that done in practice as yeah. well. Well, we need we need to see that exemplified because because I feel like yes. because I feel like we're not we're not seeing it. There may be conversations like you were saying going on behind the scene. There may be conversations that are happening in private between you know the guys that agree with us and the guys that disagree with us. But there's nothing being exemplified for the body of Christ. And I think that yeah. that that's part of the problem is that there is no there is no public debate. There is no public discourse. And that's where I feel like if these guys that are behind this new statement, 
if they went yeah. to the conference and like, okay, let's actually sit down and let's rationally discuss this because clearly yes, we're at absolutely. odds, we're at friends. We might as well just do it in front of everybody so that way we can deal with this and they can see our train of thought, our rationalization, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, like for example, I – uh, in one of my jobs, I was advising uh, a friend of mine when she was going to go speak at Politicon, and she was at which is mm. a which is a big political convention. You get people yes. that are on the left, people that are on the right, but the but the thought behind it is that we're all Americans, and so let's debate the issues, right? You'd have everybody from Ben Shapiro to Ann right. Coulter to whoever it is, and Tommy the, Laren, and, yeah, yeah, I mean, and then you have everybody on the left too, all the Young Turks, all those guys. Well, the thing is, they're they're publicly going through their train of thought they're debating the issues they're getting you know and I, and I talk to a lot of people there in the audience and they're like wow I never thought about conservative values like that because I never heard of somebody like Ben Shapiro or whoever it is espousing them why don't we do that within the church because I feel like we go to these conferences you you publicly say what your position is off stage and then you get there and then you just give everybody a pat on the back and go on as if nothing happened you know yeah, and you know what? I think what's happened today in evangelicalism, people think if you're critical of a certain pastor or leader that you don't care for them, you don't love them, mm-hmm. that you have to buy everything they write, say, and speak. Or else you're saying uh, that or, they're a heretic. <laughs> yeah, and, you're, and, and no one is. Yeah. Again, Dr. MacArthur's words to me, yep. no loyalty to anyone save Christ Jesus the Lord. This is what Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul stops following Christ. You keep following the Lord. The command was to follow the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so I think today it's the sin of sectarianism that went on in 1 Corinthians 3. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, right. I am of Cephas. And Paul says, I have to address you as being carnal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not mature. You're being children. You're just following, drifting after the personality, and they're not dealing with the truth of Scripture. Well, my favorite verse in ministry, mm-hmm. Jeff, is this, 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. And the Apostle Paul says this, for we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Mm -hmm. So I agree. Let's we need to meet as men of God, as pastors, uh, whether they're famous, whether they have study Bibles, whether they have radio shows or whether they have past records. Right. You know, the bottom line is we need to meet and to pray and to seek the Lord together and to wrestle through these things as they did at Dort, as they did at other conferences around in redemptive history, all throughout church history, and then to articulate these things biblically. Listen, I was the first guy to be banned from the Revoice Conference. Yeah, I remember that. I was, yeah. I was the only guy to be threatened with arrest if I showed up at the church. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, all, I said, and, that's all, a, and all for offering to sit down over coffee. <laughs> that's exact. Well, to sit down, you're right, to sit down with coffee and to open up God's word and let's reason through these things. Exactly. Now, I've always said that those that are propagating the blending of LGBTQ virtues with Christianity are non-believers. I don't think any of these guys are Christians mm-hmm. uh, because they so embrace something that is antithetical. They're trying to wed the gay lifestyle, homosexuality, with the perfect holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is deception mm-hmm. at dark, monumental levels. Uh, that's a separate issue. Right. But this issue of social justice, listen, one of the things that we need to talk about is how should the church help the disenfranchised? Mm-hmm. Again, I've worked with people with AIDS. I've been champions for pro-life causes. Uh, 
I have, you know, uh, been all around the world and have been in war tour zones ministering uh, to uh, people on both sides of the political issue while guns are ablazing. Right. I've gotten beat up after AIDS events uh, by 12 guys from ACT UP that left me bloody and battered in front of 8,000 people at a gay rally uh, during a World AIDS conference in San Francisco in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I get that. And you know what? We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And whether I got rolled by Satan's choice, which is the Hells Angels version in Canada, Mm -hmm. or confronting some Satanists after a meeting, or being involved with defending the rights of the poor, or helping somebody that's gone through a battered relationship and taking up for the rights of a battered woman, um, I've done all of this throughout the years. So are we to be involved in justice issues involving the weak and the poor, and Scripture's clear on this, yes, mm-hmm. but not at the expense of the gospel. Right. Those things must be gospel-driven as a sign of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel that's given um, uh, weight by doing social causes. Mm-hmm. It's that the gospel of grace demands that we care and love for our neighbor. And the parable of the Good Samaritan is clear. Our neighbor is anybody in our path in need. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. It doesn't matter their religion. We are to care for hurting people. That is a gospel imperative as the fruit of our salvation. Social justice warriors is a bit of a different thing. But we got to define that. Mm-hmm. We, have to, we, we just can't have the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. We've right. got to sit down and discuss these things, as you're saying, mm-hmm. and I hope that eventually that we'll get to that point. So, right, for Jeff, sure. hey, listen, yes. thank you so much, brother, totally. for this time uh, together. The only reason I'm getting off this wonderful time with you is my battery <laughs> has got like 1% yeah. left on it, and uh-huh. I'm surprised it hasn't died already. Uh, totally. Thank you for the privilege of talking with you. Yeah. Uh, we could talk for hours. I know. I feel like we, we could go for before. four hours. Yeah, <laughs> We have, but thank you for this privilege. And listen, I, I just want to say mm-hmm. I, I appreciate your love and your dedication for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've taken some hits unfairly out there as well. Man, keep on and keep on with the Word of God. Uh, there is no substitute for uh, men uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, in social media that will articulate a biblical worldview on these key important issues. And uh, it's a cause for prayer for us within the church at large to, re- to recover that again. But it's also an encouraging thing to pray for the faithful pastors. Again, mm-hmm. to those listening here tonight— uh, listen, most of you, John MacArthur is not your pastor. John Piper is not your pastor. Erwin right. Lutzer is not your pastor. You know, Ligon Duncan is not your pastor. Um, those are fine men, but they're not your pastor. 99.9% of you, that you don't go to their churches. Maybe you've benefited from their book or their study Bible or a sermon you've heard or a conference you heard them speak at. But when was the last time that you told your pastor, I love you? And I want to honor you. And I'm grateful that you're faithful with the word. And regardless what any of these other evangelical leaders say, I'm so glad that you're my authority within the body of Christ as a faithful under shepherd of our Lord that is serving us as the people of God. You've given us a great example. Man, share that with your pastor 
this week because they need to know that even if they don't ever have a book deal or, or have an explosive web page or right. a Twitter feed or whatever, that they are doing great work for the kingdom in the local church faithfully. And the only one that needs to be aware of that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're all going to give an account to him. So mm-hmm. thank you for this privilege of being with you, man. Keep on. And, and thank you for allowing me to share my heart with you today of, as well. Of course. And that, that was that was the perfect close and the perfect end to, to the show. And I, I really appreciate you. I appreciate your clarity. I always appreciate your wisdom and just, you know, always your willingness just to talk and talk through the issues. And I really appreciate that about you. So I'm very, right, thanks, I'm very thankful that you took the time to do this with me. So. Grace and peace. Well, listen, my wife, Cindy's been in the background here <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're ever in Florida, we'd love to have you and your wife. Come we, and visit we, us. we are, we are planning a trip to Orlando oh, in the near future. So we may oh, have to work if something you out. Ever get there. We'll come up and meet you. You can come down here. I have to say my wife is an amazing cook. She's really a chef. Yeah. I, the only reason I take her out is so she doesn't have to cook all the meals. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because in, any restaurant, any five-star restaurant we go to, she's looking at it and she goes, I, I, I can make that. I yeah, can yeah. do that. Yeah. So you know what? It will be a treat. We'd love to host you, and she sends her best to you as well. That would be a blast. Thanks so much for having uh, The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new spirit park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. HIV epidemic is not over. HIV is still here. The face of HIV is so diverse. The biggest thing to reduce HIV stigma is just to talk about it. Testing and PrEP and HIV treatment and how effective it is today. Undetectable equals untransmittable. Whether you're positive or negative, there's not a wrong door. Whether it's testing or whether it's treatment, do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyoumc.org.